I'm Diane Wilson. I'm an applied neuroscientist, a coach, and a psychotherapist. I work with brain-based treatments and training to help people access their best selves. And I have here today a very special guest, someone whose perspective I very much trust, Dr. Dacre Knight. He's a senior associate consultant and instructor in medicine at the Mayo Clinic Florida's Department of Internal Medicine. He was born in Vancouver, British Columbia, and grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. In 2001, he graduated magna cum laude with honors of from Hampton Sydney College. He was also a member of the NCAA Division III men's soccer team, which was interesting. <laughs> he completed a master's in biodefense at George Mason University under the tutelage of Dr. Ken Ellebeck. Is that, that's how you say that, Ellebeck? Right. Mm -hmm. Who's a former first deputy director of the Soviet Union's biological weapons program. He was deployed in Afghanistan for six months in 2017, covering inpatient and ICU services in a combat trauma hospital. Oh my. So then shortly after that, you joined the Mayo Clinic. Was it in Florida that you first joined or was it in, okay, oh, in Florida yep. in um, August of 2019. And then after a period leading up to the pandemic, you were redeployed to establish a virtual COVID-19 clinic at the Mayo Clinic Florida. Most recent publications are include Establishing Mayo Clinic's Coronavirus Disease uh, in 2019 Virtual Clinic uh, Preliminary Communication and COVID-19 Infection Strategies on When to Discontinue Isolation, a Retrospective Studies. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Also, in addition to that, you live with your wife and you have three children under six. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, now seven. Yeah, we just had a birthday party. <laughs> now seven? No, no, seven years old, not seven. Oh, old. my goodness. Was... Our oldest just turned seven. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So your background is just such an interesting combination for me. I I met you on in social media and you know I follow a lot of conversations I'm insanely curious about science and the pandemic and I always respect your perspective I feel like people I, I feel like you're a scientist and that you are very objective I feel drawn to your research perspectives and and the things that you're learning so I'm really excited to talk with you today have a lot of questions for you. <laughs> That's great. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> so um, tell us then what you're doing now and how is it different from what you were doing before? It, well, yeah, quite a bit different as it, it's, as it has been for many, many people, I'm sure. So you covered a bit of that in, in just reviewing some of that background. It was the um, the COVID virtual clinic that we had set up. So that had been going full swing beginning of March, all the way through March into April. And what that was a, a kind of a, a brainchild of our actually um, chair of, of outpatient practice, who was realizing that we have this, uh, that's at that point, pretty early stage of pandemic, kind of impending uh, escalation of medical needs and a larger number of patients that were going to be requiring monitoring and 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 maybe even a limitation of some of the supplies that we had available for 
healthcare providers, uh, the personal protective equipment, and and all those other things that would be used to adequately provide care safely. So what we did was we devised this system, which was essentially telemedicine, which now everyone is very familiar with practicing. But um, but what that was is a, a, a process of monitoring the patients, every patient that had tested positive, either through our drive-through we'd set up or through the emergency room, and then having a, a system of monitoring them, follow-up, a, a discussion, educating them on what they would need to know regarding this disease. Um, a lot of the questions that they have, uh, just about every patient we had, it was a tremendous amount of, of anxiety that we could see that they had and, and quite a relief also when they knew that we were going to be monitoring them and, and providing some guidance as they went through the course of infection. So we also arranged some remote monitoring technologies that were able to track their blood pressure, their heart rate, their oxygen levels while they were at home, so not having to come into the hospital. And we could kind of direct some of their medical care from from the hospital while they were at home, which was important, saving resources, but also providing the monitoring that they needed. So that's what we had been doing for the past few months. Obviously, the numbers have come up and gone down and gone back up again a bit. So that's fluctuating between our typical practice and, and what I do on a everyday practice is, is within general internal medicine. And I've actually more uh, recently, well, since the end of 2019, been the lead physician of um, our Ehlers-Danlos Clinic here. So that's a, a whole topic for another day, but that's a, a rare connective tissue disorder that requires a lot of of coordinated care for a lot of complications that those patients have. So that's within the Department of General Internal Medicine here at Mayo Clinic Florida, along with that COVID virtual clinic that we have been running. So when you were part of this, uh, the creation of this virtual clinic, was that something they had had before? It sounds like they didn't. That's... Yeah, totally new. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just as this disease was totally new, understanding it and management of it all was totally new too. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And we've learned so much from it, and we've actually been able to apply some of that information that we've learned to ongoing care. Now, when I mentioned that I had been the lead physician for the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome Clinic, we had some framework set up to be providing virtual care with that. So a, a way of seeing patients after they had done some testing and evaluations and for follow-up. And so that had just been sort of getting in place when this happened. So we had some experience with telemedicine, but it all very new. And then when this virtual clinic came about, that was its own entity totally comprised at that point. We had our, you know, our headsets, our video cameras on all of our exam room computers already set not mm -hmm. even knowing that this pandemic was coming. But so some of the infrastructure was already set, which was very helpful. So we could mm -hmm. have a fairly smooth transition, but then understanding how many patients we would need to see, how many doctors would need to be present to be able to see them. That mm -hmm. was very fluid and, and had to adapt to that very quickly. Oh my gosh. So those numbers changed. It and, and changed rapidly and then changed again, you said. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then 
we had initially cut back a lot of elective surgeries and, and we had cut back on, on seeing patients in person almost entirely. So we were able to you know, scale back our usual practice and focus on this new practice. So that was helpful. But then we started seeing, you know, numbers started to fall, fortunately, for COVID. And, and then, you know, understanding for the condition itself was more robust, even though there's still a lot lacking, but at, at least to the point that we knew that we could resume elective surgeries safely. We could resume seeing patients in clinic safely. And then we were getting a little bit back into a more of a normal practice and then COVID numbers go back up. So then a whole nother kind of juggling act goes on again of, of knowing how to see patients in a general practice while at the same time dealing with large numbers of, of COVID patients. So that was a real logistical puzzle. And, and we had a lot of support from administration to help out with that, to supply the number of providers that were able to help out and and it required a lot of extra work on the weekends and after hours, but we were all happy to do it just to see our practice function well. Yes, because I think that's that's a problem if you're going through cancer treatment and and your hospital is completely taken over by COVID. It's it's like what do you do? You know, or our hospitals need to function, and probably the more elective uh, treatments are, you know, revenue builders and how do you balance that picture i think it's it's quite difficult so it sounds like this has been balancing all these moving pieces as as the demand in covid comes up and down oh yeah absolutely and 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 there's been a lot of interesting research in that too the kind of the outside effects or peripheral effects of COVID, not related to necessarily the infection itself, but also kind of uh, secondary effects to for strokes or or uh, cardiac care or, and, or cardiac disease and and cancer and and mental health and all of those things that had been sidelined a bit and and now you know realizing we require they do require attention and continued attention or else those those issues will just continue to to rise and so it's it's a real puzzle finding the right balance of, of providing adequate adequate care where it's needed and prioritizing that but it's all has to be taken in consideration so so um that's what we're still going through currently and and still trying to learn as much as we can i think it's a great model it, especially in the sense that you read about you know, people should stay home and isolate if they're if they have COVID. And and I mean, you would just be so afraid. Most people would be. And it, if if you're monitored, like you said, it just eases their their anxiety that you don't have to leave your house to get your blood pressure checked or something. That that there's someone there because the array of symptoms would just be so frightening. It sounds like it would be better for everybody not to be you know have sick people moving in and out of places. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And, and, and they were, I mean, it, it was the, the nervousness was palpable when having that first discussion with the patients and informing them of, of their disease status and, you know, their infection and having that kind of reassurance to be available to them and, and continue to monitor them and answer their questions, I, I know was very, very valuable. So. Mm -hmm. It was a good thing to do. Yes. 
I was thinking back on a conversation that we had and in terms of your emotional response to COVID and, and what this was like, and I wondered if you could think of the same thing I'm thinking of, which is probably difficult, but <laughs> as a medical trained person who's been in Afghanistan and well-trained, what was it like to, to be in this medical mystery? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. And, and I think that's what is, I think, going to be so interesting to see with this podcast when it comes out, what other, other impressions are, because it's, it's so unique and so varied and everyone has different perspectives. And, and, and it's really a, a good way to see how all of us are all tied together with the same problem and, and have a, a different perspectives on it maybe and have different levels of encounters with it. And so, I, yeah, I, I'm happy to share that and, and, and I'm definitely looking forward to hear others too. So my experience with it was, well, I'm, first, we had been informed of this epidemic, you know, localized to China at first, um, and then obviously made the reports that there were initial cases in Seattle, and the care homes there, and then starting to spread to um, California, Chicago. And at that point, it was still fairly hopeful. I mean, naively so now looking back, but that this was a condition that was not likely to spread very easily or those that were transmitting the infection were in contact or close contact or close proximity maybe family members spouses that were that were um, exposed to it I, and i remember i seen reports of a, a, a couple um, a married couple in chicago i think very earlier on uh, there were some of the first cases in the united states kind of having this reassurance in my mind at the time is like, okay, it was a married couple, like, all right, it looks like it will be okay. And, you know, we had a lot of conferences and, and I was planning to present at the Ellers Danler Society conference in, in July. And I was planning to present at another artificial intelligence conference in, in May of Rochester in May and, and all these things planned. So all these other things going on. So we weren't really stopping our, our, our job and didn't even think about stopping it at that point or canceling anything and until you know i guess i'd have to say it was the point um well right around february and you know cases were spreading all throughout the united states obviously new york was getting a very heavy uh hit from this but when we were starting to cancel more events locally is was when you realized okay you know things are going to start to change there's actually a really big golf tournament they have near here uh, at, um, at tpc in, in ponte Vedra. and they had think had one or two days of that which is a huge event and and, and we were expecting the traffic to be blocked and you know hours to get home from work but they just canceled it outright and I knew at that point like okay Things are, things are going to be a little bit different now. Mm -hmm. So we were discussing within our department what we're going to expect. We don't really know what's the best information out there. Well, it looks like it's actually spreading a lot more quickly and, not, um, and, and a lot more easily and, and kind of even still mysteriously with you know, asymptomatic patients carrying this. So uh, we talked about the likely... Um, numbers of patients we could be seeing, trying to follow the models as best as we can. 
and preparing for that. So we did set up the virtual clinic at that time before we even really had any large numbers of patients. And, and, and when we went through it, we, Florida was actually doing fairly well through March and into April. And our, we never really got overburdened. Obviously, like I said, we had cut back on some of our practice to, in anticipation of what could be worse, what we were seeing in New York. Uh, but things actually, you know, as we know in the news, we all saw Florida got a lot worse more recently. So and the, at that stage, it was, we were prepared, we were doing okay. So it was a lot of, I guess, you know, the best way to, to describe it at first is, is, you know, confusion about, you know, what is this that, you know, we're encountering? Is this really as bad as it is, you know, told to be? Um, is it really going to last all as long as, you know, some might say, or, you know, are we going to be able to go to these conferences and keep these trips scheduled? And so that, you know, turned into, you know, the confusion turned into, you know, in a, in a way from an academic medical perspective, it's really interesting what this is going on. And mm-hmm. I mean, we never encountered anything like it. And, and, our lifetimes and and you know you can study about pandemics and epidemics and 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 learn about the science of infectious diseases but until you really live in the moment and you start really having to fear for your life your family's life the lives of your patients it really is hard to grasp and so you know that little bit of a kind of an excitement from an academic interest you know, combined with a little bit of fear too of not knowing, which I think is a, a sense of a, what a lot of other my colleagues shared. Um, so, you know, then that, that kind of evolved further into a little bit of more, you know, acceptance that this is the condition that we're going to just have to live in to now, you know, continued interest academically and intellectually from all the effects that this is having on not only healthcare, but our society and economy and and educational systems and all the rest it's it's really quite interesting from that level um and also you know it's still just a as a burden though too on on our lives and and on the lives of my fellow physicians who you know are are actually you know had our salaries cut for a period of time you know a lot of businesses took a huge blow from this and um to think that you know that effect is so pronounced for people who are really trying to make ends meet and really trying to do good it's so hard to accept but it's that's the way it is and unfortunately um but can only hope that it gets better as soon as it can that amazed me that 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 would be one outcome even temporarily that here you have physicians that are working even harder in in high risk situations higher than they've probably ever been in and and then to cut their salaries it's just like what that's incomprehensible right yeah it is it is and and you know and we I, i don't even have any blame for Mm-hmm. anyone who's making those mm-hmm. decisions. I don't envy anyone who has to make those decisions because those mm-hmm. are very, very difficult decisions to make. Sure. You know, trying to maintain the practice and also trying to continue to give 
adequate care to the patients and, and also and dealing with the effects of the, you know. Mm -hmm. And some hospitals closing even. Right. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Businesses around us have been closing and, and uh, I talked to a colleague of mine who works at it for a different healthcare practice in another location of Florida who had, had just been let go. And I, you know, I can't imagine. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then you're a father. Right. So, I mean, how do you, how do you, what kind of rituals do you have in place that how does that impact on your family? Yeah, it's big impact. And it's, it's another perspective that's, you know, shared by some, not by all. And, and I'm sure even those who have this perspective of being a parent during this all have their own kind of unique um, situations that they have to deal with. So it's, again, I mean, on top of being a physician and, and seeing patients who may or may not have COVID and and then, mm -hmm. and then trying to explain to, you know, children that, you know, their activities are limited, you're not going to school, your, you know, playground is closed, you're mm -hmm. not able to see any of your friends. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, but, um, and, and I have to owe so much credit to my wife, who has just been able to take the role of, you know, <laughs> house uh, care, you know, child care, uh, homeschooling, and, and all the rest. And our, our youngest is still just a one and a half years old. And oh. so requires a lot of attention. But I think that um, this is like I was describing with one of the other kind of secondary effects of this pandemic, not just the infectious and other kind of um, conditions that are caused by the infection, but the secondary effects that you know increase the burden of of mental health and anxiety and 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 I don't know the specific numbers, but I you know I I know the numbers of you know those with mental health are getting worse and um, there were rates of domestic abuse going up, child abuse going up in certain uh, hospitals in England. I saw those numbers had been increasing, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we feel the effect of it. We're we're um, you know kind of locked in prison in our own house, and and but doing it to keep safe and and doing mm -hmm. it for the right reasons. So it's just a matter of you know trying to talk through it and understand it and and keep in contact. Also, try to maintain some connection with our friends and, and family and, you know, try to keep as much normal as we can. Mm -hmm. Well, I support you. It's extremely difficult role that you're in. What sustains you? What helps, what helps keep your equilibrium in this and restores you power? Yeah. So what was really sustaining at first was the, kind of just the interest in this condition as well. I mean, anyone in, who gets into a medical or a science field has obviously got some driving curiosity that brings them into this to begin with. So, uh, you know, it was a, a, a highly curious situation. I mean, all of the, all of the ramifications of, you know, how this came to be, what is this going to mean? How do you treat it? How do you, how do you explain to people what this is? 
so what was sustaining was this just kind of academic interest in it at first. And it was really exciting. I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I had a hard time putting down the, the, the news and the reports and you know, just to get some time for some R and R at the end of the day and having to be reminded by my wife is, you know, time to go to bed, <laughs> but it was really fascinating. So, mm-hmm. and, and you know, getting all of the questions from a lot of family and friends of, you know, what's going on. Unfortunately, I didn't really have many answers, but, um, but definitely eager to try to learn those answers. So that eagerness was very sustaining at first. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, then that turned into, you know, get you finally, I mean, you get more of an understanding. You kind of get used to seeing a lot of similar reports. I mean, some things are still new and some things are still interesting about it. Of course, there's still a lot to learn. Uh, but um, but then at that point, it you know, we started seeing our patients again. And so my general interest of taking care of my patients was was resuming and so that was you know kind of taking over that transition which was strange because there was still the pandemic going on and still trying to provide care to patients that i had been seeing before the pandemic so that was uh, yeah a bit of a transition it was it was moving from one to the next and so right now you know it's it's back to kind of my usual um, applied interest as a physician of of seeing patients mm-hmm. overcome their illnesses and diagnostic you know interests of of diagnosing rare diseases or complicated cases and and mm-hmm. things like that so that's what's continued mm-hmm. so do you do you run do you do you have good nutrition? <laughs> I'm sorry, asking the doc these questions, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Because <laughs> it looks like it, you played soccer. You you right. were unaccomplished, and it it sounds like you're. I put superhero kind of like you know on different dimensions. It sounds like you, your career is involved doing things that are athletic. Yeah. Right, right. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. But I do, yeah, try to try to practice what I preach, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so yeah, and I actually have to give credit to one of my colleagues who just implemented a stair challenge because we now moved up to the eighth floor of our building. And so we've got a friendly competition among colleagues to see, see who's going to climb the most number of stairs and, and, uh, and, and who reaches their daily goal of stair climbing. So I get that in at least daily. But yeah, I do. I, 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 I notice myself, I have to get some level of exercise, if not on a daily basis, at least every other day. And that's usually going for a run before work in the mornings. And, um, and, and these days in Florida, it's, it's not a whole window of opportunity to go running before it gets too hot to have to require you to, you know, shower and change your clothes. But yeah, I, I, I do. I do find a lot of benefit from that. So I'm able to encourage my patients into such activities with a little bit more sense of, 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 uh, I guess, relief that I'm actually Coherence. doing it myself. Yeah. <laughs> right. I am not, doing this. Yeah. It's not easy. I have to say, but, um, while I was playing with a group, a little, little soccer league locally and just up until the pandemic and you know, we were all kind of joking that we, you know, 
you can't really play soccer the same way you used to because you got to maintain distance. So <laughs> outdoor space is good, but you know, I have to keep separated a little bit. Oh, you'll be able to go back to that someday. Yes. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> so what are you especially proud of from this time? And I know it's, it's just been a really challenging time, but uh, when you, when you think back on it, uh, maybe it's large or small, but an unexpected takeaway or something that you feel particularly good about? Yeah, I feel, I feel good about generally for all of humankind, the amount of knowledge that has been gained with this. Now, many would say, and probably rightly so, is that some of that knowledge was already there and should have been applied before this happened. Okay, hindsight's mm -hmm. twenty twenty, but still, a large amount of knowledge has been gained, and that will be very interesting to still see what yet is further going to be understood. But I think as a society, it also gives us a chance to really ask some bigger questions of what are our priorities and what is our purpose. And I think this just must be a, a sociologist, really just a piece of you know, delicious data and information <laughs> to really digest and, and see how people interact and react and 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 come to an understanding of what is the the best way we have to live our lives with you know understanding all the complications that can arise so what i what i you know am happy about is is that information is that chance to kind of second check you know ourselves and what we're doing and and what we're here for and you know what is our purpose and 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 we have such great abilities as human beings to process information and to socialize and communicate. And this is, couldn't think of a better way to exhibit the need for that communication and socialization amongst humans and, and the hunger that humans have for it. And, you know, almost to a fault, how much they desire that connection. So really to, you know, to understand that better and further, I think is, is going to be really, really fascinating and very useful for us in years to come. Because, you know, ultimately we all want to live long, happy, healthy lives and, and how do we get there and, and what can we do to help each other get there, which I think is so fantastic with this podcast that you're doing is hearing these voices and these perspectives and these thoughts because you know ultimately with this pandemic I, I i i know i've heard some others point this out but i have to point it out myself is that maybe even the closest thing you could relate it to is you know previous pandemics or world wars but i don't know of much of anything that has affected the human race as much as this to such a degree that we really feel like we are now one community as human beings and we really have a purpose to help each other and to create a life that is conducive to health and happiness and what it means and how to get there and so it's and you know yes. obviously looking on the silver lining of the cloud but 
I, I do think that there's going to be a lot of benefit from the, a lot of the, the information that we gain from this. A lot of the connections we've made, the chance that I have now here to discuss this with you and, and to connect with other people is so valuable. And, and I hope that some of that continues and we learn how to amplify that as years mm -hmm. come. Yes, yes. It's a fantastic outcome or silver lining or realization or need. And, and it's funny because social media is, I never dreamed social media would, would provide that. And yet I just find that that world that, you know, we've created in this is just extremely powerful and very positive, full right. of rich creative possibilities and just, you know, brilliance. It's, it's phenomenal. It's awesome. It, it's it is. that sense of like all these people. I remember there was the issue of how to intubate safely and you would see the anesthesiologist exchanging ideas on that. And then, you know, the parts where, you know, I especially saw your comments in terms of the antibodies and, and those therapies as they emerge and people are sharing ideas and, and discoveries. It was, was amazing. Just amazing. Right. right. There have been two other places in my life that I've, I've experienced that, and not, and not even to this degree, but that has given me the idea of the value behind this level of communication and connection and, and sharing of ideas. And the first one was in Afghanistan when you mentioned it. I was at the small, relatively small hospital at the air base there. And we had a collection of just about every specialty that you could imagine that would be in a larger medical center. Uh, all just about every surgical specialty, um, trauma surgery, orthopedic surgery, general surgery, ear, nose, and throat, uh, neurosurgery, um, internal medicine, cardiology, family medicine, dentists. We all just within a small area all within a small practice really and and with a chance to interact daily in in a you know whatever whatever it was a physician's lounge just a, a basically <laughs> a small room with you know some puzzles here and there to distract you but also a chance to just kick back and 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 catch the breeze with the other, the other doctors who have seen certain cases or have different ideas about different cases or even just just kind of other topics outside of medicine, but and especially within medicine, and that was so valuable that I, I had not encountered that variety of of practice and interests since medical school. And even in medical school, you don't really have that level of education and understanding yet. Residency, you're a little bit more focused within your group and specialty of, of care. So that was hugely rewarding, and I get a sense of some of that going on right now too with a lot of people in social media and, and, and through other publications and resources sharing ideas and these discussion forums among doctors on Facebook and Twitter of, of or producing videos and, and sharing thoughts and ideas and information coming from Italy and from China. And, and it, was, it was a whole worldwide effort of shared knowledge. And, Mm -hmm. uh, the second time I encountered that was actually when I took the job at Mayo and, and going through the history of Mayo, understanding that that really was what led to the success of Mayo from the beginning. When uh, Dr. Mayo and his two sons were inviting in other physicians from 
around the world and when they themselves traveled elsewhere around the world to understand other practices and and more up to date kind of cutting edge technology and information and bringing it back to their practice and now seeing the the benefits and of of those procedures and things that really became renowned and respected and and because of that shared knowledge and and then now it is what it is today and and it's fantastic to see that effect and so i think anywhere any environment not only within healthcare that encourages that kind of communication that kind of connection and shared information and shared knowledge is is going to see leaps and bounds of progress it reminds me someone had sent me a note the other night and said that that when the pandemic first happened that he had some professional questions and he's an anesthesiologist and so he reached out to someone in Australia and someone in the United States, he's, he's in Canada, and he said he felt like the world was holding his shoulders. Right. I mean, it was just, it was really beautiful. It was like, you know, he's scared. It's, it's like, how he's going to do this? And his mentor weighed in right. and somebody else weighed in and it was just it was beautiful. Right, right. It's, it's just phenomenal what some people are doing out there. And I, and I, I feel, I mean, humbled by, the those that really are d doing so much more i even think than, than myself I, I don't think i'm doing anything com compared to that so it's it's remarkable to see <laughs> you are and and you're doing this today so <laughs> what do people know need to know that you can tell them that they might not know about the pandemic from your vantage point it's like what do people need to do yeah, Just, that's a that's a good question. So there's a lot of the obvious things. Um, there's you know the, so the kind of the four pillars of of mitigation and management behind it that you know have just been repeated on, on to no end, which are mm -hmm. worth repeating. It's the wearing of masks. It's the appropriate hand hygiene or hygiene in general, wiping down surfaces, keeping clean, the distancing from others, or social distancing or physical distancing, which may actually be a better application of the of the practice, and then uh, testing. You know, uh, you know, testing when needed, testing with symptoms, testing with exposure. So everyone knows that I think fairly well at this point. What they also need to know is that the research behind this it's it's so frustrating for doctors and patients alike i i've had numerous times that patients asking me well you know, i've heard about this treatment i i want to try this treatment or you know i i you know i think i someone told me that this treatment is going to work and i i want a treatment to work and and we all do now there are some things that do work and there are in the still in the process of clinical trials and evaluation with the convalescent plasma, the remdesivir, the dexamethasone, mm -hmm. all of those things that are showing some benefit. But I know we've gone through all the debates of the hydroxychloroquine and plaquenil, azithromycin mm -hmm. and zinc. So that research takes time and it is so frustrating and, and, and demanding that patience of those who are feel for, fearful for their lives is so difficult as a physician. So. I mean, people need to know that it's it's not only frustrating for those who are ill or, or in fear, it's also frustrating for us as physicians to not be able to give what we want to give to our patients. And this is what's driving us 
not only from our own academic interests, like I was talking about before, but also our interests of helping take care of others, which is why we came into this calling. And so it's, it's, it's difficult. And, uh, and I want, you know, others to know that it is, it is difficult for us to have to accept that. Now I am hopeful and I'm optimistic about the research that can be done. I'm optimistic about the vaccine trials that are underway. Mm-hmm. Now it may not be the end all, the answer to everything. So we obviously have to keep our expectations in check. Mm-hmm. But having said that, there will be, I think, you know, a, a point in time where our knowledge catches up with this and our understanding of what to do is a little, is, is better. I mean, it certainly can't be any worse than what we started with a year ago. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, another thing to know is that, that this knowledge will continue to build on and we will continue to be able to have a better application of what, you know, we need patients to accept that there are still limitations in what we can do. Now, prevention is still always possible and prevention is so important with any medical dis- disorder or diseases that preventable diseases, you know, it, it's so much easier to wear a mask, to wash your hands, to distance yourself, or to you know get tested or if you have symptoms and things like that than it is to go through an intensive care unit mm-hmm. and not many people may see that and they not may not remember that but it's something that needs to be pointed out i've heard other physicians pointed out but prevention is so important mm-hmm. and the the last thing i would kind of leave it with is is the is the lasting effect of this pandemic which i think is something that we're going to see for a long time to come. Uh, that is the effect that it's had, not only on our you know, economy, on our businesses, on our ability to provide care, um, not only in the you know, kind of more short-term effects of those requiring cancer treatment or, or elective surgeries or you know, stroke um, victims or you know, those with cardiovascular disease, but also even more so than all those other diseases is mental health and, and the mental health diseases that we're going to see to be a kind of an ongoing lasting effect from this that it works is, is so devastating, but also so important to address and be aware of and help manage it. I had just heard on a, another pod, great podcast I listened to, which I would recommend to other physicians and those like us called Curbsiders with uh, Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams, that uh, I guess they were having on one of the recent episodes was describing how the World Health Organization has described depression as what will be the world's leading disease burden by 2030. Mm-hmm. And I, I think to some to account, certainly from the pandemic. So and depression is, is devastating to, to patients, family members, and clinicians alike. And if we can do everything we can to help mitigate that, you know, seeking medical attention when it's needed, but also helping out those around ourselves, friends and family that might be showing signs of that, that, um, you know, they need to have someone reach out to them. And, and those that can continue to have that social engagement and human connection that has been proven to stave off some of these effects of the mental health disorders. I think that's so important. Mm-hmm. Even talking about it, just even laying out the terrain, the 
things that can happen, giving it words and it is, it's so important, isn't it? So that's, that's something that we can expect and we can look for in our friends and family and, and we can talk about solutions and it can be a, a, a topic, it, you know, a, a acknowledge need. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And again, the more the reason for this kind of shared information and communication and understanding of what's going on and, and how to address those very important issues. Mm -hmm. Well, I could talk with you all day. Honestly, I just have a list of questions. Could you yeah. give me a minute on school return? I know you've posted different things and, and, and you know, you, with your own children, it's like, what do you do? What, what do you recommend? Yeah, that it's such an important topic, especially for parents, but not only parents, but also educators, teachers, um, policymakers, mm -hmm. and, and then anyone else who can see the effect of you know, transmission of an infection, which is essentially everyone. Yes. So it is an important topic. And, and it's obviously on the minds of many because this is the time of year with just about everyone returns to school and, and, and it is, I think, no better way to be described than being stuck between a rock and a hard place. And there is probably, you know, kind of the golden mean, the golden solution. I don't think anyone knows what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of appropriate concerns on both sides, concerns for, you know, risk of, of spikes in infections, risk of, you know, children being carriers and, um, and, and, and spreading illness to their family members and so on. There's also mm -hmm. risk of, of, on the other side, of inadequate education, of, you know, kind of this persistent risk of mental health burden um, mm -hmm. for anyone in the family with children or children themselves who, you know, might be improved by some sort of kind of social interaction and engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a, in a report on um, yeah, the hospital in, in London. I can't remember which one it was that their, their cases of child abuse went up like something like over 1400% <gasps> since the onset of the pandemic. And, you know, some of those cases may not only be related to children being at home or not in school, but I, I do strongly believe that a lot of those children who are at risk are from you know in being environments where they would actually be safer in school yes. so it's a very very difficult situation and again just like you know those who are having to decide to make the salary cuts and budget cuts and all the rest i do not envy any of those that have to make the decision now what i've heard from those smarter than i am on this topic is that uh, from certain infectious disease experts and so on that they have reviewed the return to school sort of guidelines and safety measures, and they feel very confident with them. So that's reassuring. Now, obviously time will tell. I think we have an advantage being now getting towards the middle and end of August that our information understanding of this disease has developed and we know ways to improve it. Masks are now being more accepted widely. So mm -hmm. we have those things to help benefit. We have more access to testing and I hope that continues to increase. And I think we can benefit from further access and more of the rapid type of testing. And maybe, you know, we'll even have the benefit of a vaccine around the corner, I hope. So all of those things 
kind of help give me some comfort in, in our children returning to school. But it's, you know, it's, I, I would be amiss if I said that I was sending them back to school with, you know, 100% confidence and, and reassurance because that's mm -hmm. not the case. But um, it is, it is an important topic and I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked that. Mm -hmm. Will you send your own children back? Have you decided? Yeah, they, they, they had um, their start date pushed back three weeks mm -hmm. um, here in Florida. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, it's crazy because on one hand, we've set up this virtual clinic and we're, you know, put, putting numbers of, of doctors who need to be available. And we have set off mm -hmm. a certain number of increased number of doctors to be made available simply because of the effect of what returning to school might bring. And on the mm -hmm. opposite end of that, it's, you know, I'm almost at a, in a, at a crossroads here because I'm, we are sending our children back to school. And so how does that make sense? It, it doesn't, it's just, it's one of those other, other instances in this pandemic that just doesn't make sense. Um, mm -hmm. But like I said, there's a, a golden mean between, you know, mm -hmm. staying home from school, um, staying away from school, isolating yourself, quarantining for certain periods of time, and then also being engaged, um, getting adequate education, uh, keeping the economy alive, all mm -hmm. of those things. It's, it's a huge puzzle. And, mm -hmm. and anyone who says they got the answer, I would, I would, <laughs> I would be very admiring and I would, I would <laughs> love to hear it. But mm -hmm. I, um, I think that's still yet to come. So we, uh, yes. we, we, I mean, we are doing certain things in our household to help prevent that so we're limiting obviously I have some older parents and 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 um, family members who we're limiting exposure to in this short-term period hopefully it's short um, while our children are going back to school and reconnecting mm -hmm. so um, we are fortunate though that we are in that situation and, and not every every child is able to kind of keep a little bit of distance from the older or more at risk members of their family. And so those, I think it's appropriate for them to have, they, they, there are ways for some children to have access to online education. And, and I think in those cases, that's good. Again, not every child may have the resources for online education. So that's a whole nother quagmire. Yes. But um, it's a lot of things to take in consideration. A lot of things. I can imagine someone being really skilled at many things and then suddenly having two kids at home and being a teacher it would be like oh my gosh right prepare right. me for this a lot of right. people have to work and right yes exactly well you have been great i have many more questions but i'm aware of your time <laughs> yeah i know these are great questions a great chance to talk and i'm i really like i said i'm really looking forward to hearing some of these other um, people who have given their input as well, because it's, it's so fascinating. And I really love this form of speaking and I've gotten into more kind of other podcasts. Like I said, the one I'm following is a physician and curbsiders. And then a shout out to another uh, friend of mine who runs another podcast called Anonymous MD, Dr. T and Lisa. That's another great one. That's I think very good for the kind of the 
general understanding of a lot of medical questions for the average person. And, and this is it's a great forum. So I'm very happy that you were able to bring me on. I feel honored. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Great. All right. Well, you take good care of yourself. Really, I, I stay well. And thank you for all that you're doing. I really, really appreciate it. We all really appreciate your work. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. It's great to be here. And thank you again, Dr. Dacre Knight, for talking with me today and for opening this series of podcasts called Voices in the Pandemic. You can find out more about Dr. Knight's work and how to follow him on social media on our website. We have five more episodes in this series, and it will feature some equally fascinating people. You can learn more about them and what's ahead on our website, geniuspodcast.us. That's geniuspodcast, all one word, dot us. It's our vision that this series will be a resource to inform and to connect with you, to help you feel braver in the face of stress, and to expand your own perspective by knowing other human stories. If you have someone you'd like me to consider interviewing, or if you're interested in sponsorship or my services as a peak performance coach, please contact us at our website. I want to thank a few people for making this a series that I'm very proud of. At first is Dan Shipmacher, our production manager, webmaster, and more. Second, Cameron Wyant, my assistant at Grimard Wilson Consulting, my private practice, for her help in editing, organizing, and developing the content. Editorial staff, Gary Wilson, and strategy, Toby Doerr visual input from Lisa Files, and a photo from Anne Latinovich. Thank you, Anne. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to sign up for the rest of the series if you would like, and for our newsletter. Also, be sure to share this with your friends and your family to spread the love and inspiration that you're finding here. It's so important right now to continue doing that. The world needs our inspiration. Thank you, and be well.